Welcome to the Walter Paisley Movie House, where we celebrate the little engines that could not. Coming to you from Nilbog Manor Studios, I'm here with my engineer Jason Harris, with music by Jonathan Harmon, and I'm your host Dylan Rory. Today's podcast is brought to you by Matt Kowalski's Polka Emporium, your place for the best in polka band apparel. Mention this podcast for 15% off Stage Ready Later Hosen. Today's guest is a true auteur. Born in Latvia, his family was uprooted by World War II, leading to a slow exodus through Europe that eventually landed them in post-war Hamburg, Germany, and finally the U.S. His career started in television at Chicago's famous WGN. He worked his way up from the mailroom and into various production roles. Between taking dance and singing lessons, he also studied drama at the Goodman Theater, eschewing a scholarship to the prestigious Art Institute of Chicago. Eventually heading back to Germany, he worked with innovative producer Aldebert Baltes. There, he helped refine the wraparound or 360-degree motion picture, eventually bringing the process back with him to the U.S. After settling in Wisconsin, he founded the first movie studio in the Midwest called The Shooting Ranch. There, he, along with his late wife Barbara, produced, wrote, directed, and in most cases was cinematographer on 13 of the most exemplary low-budget features of all time, as well as founding independent artist pictures. He's worked with many iconic Hollywood stars like Ralph Meeker, Alan Hale Jr., Steve Brody, June Travis, Leslie Parrish, Bill Williams, Barbara Hale, and he helped launch the career of Peter Krause. His cult status was solidified with his breakout film and one of the top 50 highest-earning films of that year, 1975's The Giant Spider Invasion. But it is bolstered by the cult legends with which he has worked. Kevin Brody, Diane Lee Hart, Christian Smitmer, Robert Easton, George Buck Flower, Stafford Morgan, John Goff, John Alderman, Otis Young, Gianna Keough, Denise Charisse, Meredith Orr, David Allen Smith, Cherie Cafaro, Tiny Tim, and the godfather of gore himself, Mr. Herschel Gordon-Lewis. Aside from making genre movies and innovating the industry, he's also worked in radio, expanded German production facilities to the U.S., authored two books about film financing, as well as the fictional from Roswell with Love. On top of all that, he also ran twice for governor of Wisconsin. If you're a cult movie fan, and we assume you are if you're listening to this podcast, then you probably guessed that today we are talking to the man who created Fritz Schlitz and Bud, the DeMille of the Dairy State, the inimitable Bill Rebane. You still there, Bill, or did I put you to sleep? No, no. <laughs> Tension, Daryl. Thank you. I'm very happy. Thank you for joining us. You did. It was a very nice job you did. Well, well thank you. Thank you. Uh, so I guess we could just go ahead and start at the beginning. So you were born in Latvia. And as I mentioned, the war kind of uprooted your entire family. I, I read that your father was a boxer with the Tartu boxing team. What was that exactly? Yeah, that was a, um, I think they started at the university boxing team in, in Tartu, Estonia. I understand he was uh quite good at it, and he met my mother in Latvia uh, during, a, during a fight exhibition in, in Riga, Latvia, um, against the uh, Latvian champions. 
And so was she this there watching and just fell for this probably uh, exemplary human? He was a follower of sports, and she, I guess he he caught her attention. (laughs) And your mother spoke six languages, is that correct? Yes, she did. What were those? Um, Well, starting out, she was born in Borova, Russia. So Russian, Estonian, Latvian, German, French, Spanish, and English. Wow. That's impressive. I know a lot of people who can't even speak one. (laughs) So when you uh, were younger and you guys uh, were, uh, of course, horribly uprooted and having to move through, I read that uh, you've mentioned later on in life how seen what communism had done to Russia, um, as well as just the war throughout Europe, that that had a huge impact on you, obviously, at your age. That obviously carried with you for a while. What what sort of impact did that have on you overall? Well, it wasn't much fun. I mean, uh, I don't hate to go into the horror details, but... Uh, I, whatever you're comfortable speaking about, I understand. No, it was a lot of lot of, I mean, in war, there's a lot of commotion around, and uh, we were always at the Russian Russians about um, maybe five to ten, maybe twenty miles behind us. Oh, my gosh. Trying to stay ahead of them, and most of the time in a horse and covered wagon. That must have been terrifying. Uh, I have a tough time putting the time frame together. It was about maybe 19... 41, evacuating to Prussia, and then from there to Poland, just when Poland was overrun by the Germans. But we preferred at that time, because remember, the the Baltic states were very much Germanic. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Baltic Germans, so, so to say. So... It was better for us to get closer to the German lines and in the German-occupied territory than than, uh, be caught by the Russians, which was all communist. I understand. Not that there was a hell of a lot of difference Nazis and the communism. Yeah, they were both, at that time, with Stalin and Hitler, they were both pretty awful people. (laughs) And you've said that uh, when you were in, you, you ended up in Hamburg and somehow your father found you guys. Uh, you, you guys, you'd gone there with your mother and grandmother and your father, who was conscripted into service uh, after the war, was able to find you guys. And uh, you lived in Germany for a little while after that. And you said that your father would only speak Estonian, even in Germany? Yes, he had the opposite talent my my mother had. <laughs> muster language as a matter of fact i don't know i made it through the german army not speaking hardly any german right <laughs> uh yeah i had a tough time with languages yeah even in the united states later on there was a he would speak one word estonian one word german and one word english but he somehow would communicate and get along which was always a puzzle to us well he he pulled a few numbers out here in the, in the war, uh, diverting the Russians in the 
totally wrong direction. Uh, from what I recall hearing about, he was a tank commander on the Russian front. And so, and so he was able to basically, uh, it sounds like, use some subterfuge there? Well, during the, I don't remember which battle it was in, in Russia, Stalingrad, um, a friend of mine, a historian, just reminded me there was a different battle because of his division that he was in. Um, and during the winter, he, uh, he got a kidney infection uh, in Russia and was, and they trucked him to Berlin. And, and it so happened that an uncle of mine was uh, working in the uh, communications division at the Reichstag. Mm-hmm. I think you know what that is. Yes. And he was able to keep track of where the family was going and where the danger spots are and where the, the safer areas were. So he somehow, that's how my father found us, I guess. The, I uh, see. Uh, 19, late 43 or early 44. Okay. Close to the bar. We arrived in Germany uh, just about as the... the uh, Germans capitulated. That's what I'd read. Yeah. So, and you were, you avoided the, the communist side and got into Hamburg. Right. That was, but that was after they going through the, the bombing of Berlin, which we barely survived. That must have been absolutely terrifying. I, I think that's something I, I just as well skip over. I mean, I understand. I, I understand. The, the world knows what the. <laughs> Berlin was all about. Yeah. So what, from there you guys got to America. How did that happen? What prompted that? Well, we spent a lot of time at first in immigration camps or refugee camps. And uh, it so happened that my father's sisters had immigrated to America first, right after the war. I think it was 1946. They, they were the first ones out of Germany and uh, lived in Chicago, and they prompted him and communicated with him to please get out of Germany and come to America. And so you guys ended up in Chicago, and at what point did you, you'd said that you were, when you first discovered movie theaters, you were just riveted. Was that when you got to America, or was that previous to that? I recall the first theater opening in a little town, in Germany, which is a few miles removed from where we lived. Mm -hmm. And there was a huge open area in a swamp between the town and my village that we lived in with a dike that was only passable by, well, you could walk it or you could take a bicycle. I remember hearing about the movie theater in the other village that opened up and showed some of the first... Uh, German pictures that were just right after the war, about a year, a year and a half. So, mm -hmm. and I bicycled over there to see the first movie. Do you remember what it was? You know, I may have a a senior moment here for a minute. Oh, that's quite all right. It was a and, bit. It was a bit ago. <laughs> but it was a. 
German picture, and I was thrilled with it. Big screen. And I made friends with the, the daughter of the owner of the movie house. Matter of fact, I can't remember how that happened, but uh, I had good reasons to travel to the theater on the bicycle. The tourists wants to see the movie and wants to see the daughter of the movie. <laughs> That's a powerful motivator. Did you think then, when you were watching those, did you think then this is something I'd like to do? No, I had no clue at that time. I see. Although the first years in German, German school which I attended instantly after they reopened, after the capitulation. I remember doing a couple of plays, and my first role was Jack in the Box. I popped out of the box, I had some lines, and uh, I can't remember the play, or, but I do right. remember the part. Uh, so how, about how old were you then? Well, let's see. 37, this is 40. 44, 7, eight, 8 years old. About 8, okay. And where? by the time you guys got to Chicago, about how old were you then? I was 15. 15, okay. And then you ended up at WGN. How did that happen? Um, I was a member of the Chicago YMCA because my father was a sports teacher there, soccer teacher and boxing teacher, and a friend of his, televised a director for a commercial film studio in New York at the time, living in Chicago, befriended him, introduced me to a um, the announcer and the host of the Germania broadcast in Chicago, which was actually, I think, a national broadcast on WGS radio. It was a German language radio show. And uh, this director um, suggested to the, the host that I should possibly take over some of the time of announcing. I had no experience whatsoever, but I had, um, I spoke a good high German and uh, evidently filled the bill well. And the, the host of the show welcomed me. And, uh, and through that connection, I also, I was told that uh, and I check into a WGN television to get a job. I had to get a job because I was spending all my pocket money and everything I could get from my parents going to theaters on 63rd Street in Chicago. There was one on every block, and they had double, triple feature, quadruple features, and one picture wasn't enough a day, and I had to sit through two or three of them. Yeah, that's uh, back when movie theaters would just run the pictures all day and you could just go pay and sit all day watching the same two, three, whatever they're running. Right, and it helped me tremendously with learning the English language. I imagine. Wow. Do you remember some of the movies that really stood out to you at that time? There's one in particular that I recall. Superman and the Mole Men. Yes. I have never seen it since. And I think I saw every Western, every science fiction picture that was made or available during those days. Wow. And music. I'm sorry, that's, I forgot the musicals. Yeah, there were a lot of musicals coming out at that time. And 
John LaCona was my idol at the time. Uh, what a great idol to have. Well, so uh, jumping forward a little bit, it was a thrill of a lifetime, and I had an opportunity to direct John LaCona in a picture. And which one was that? That was originally called Miracle in a Manger. That was in the, in the 80s. Mm-hmm. When we had our our studio in operation, had uh, all the location equipment anybody could possibly want, and a semi truck and to deliver equipment anywhere. Mm-hmm. I had a um, deal with the writer, the original writer of the picture, Tom Travis, who was a novice, had no experience in production, but he was a good writer, and we collaborated on the screenplay. And when it came to production, he, of course, made a deal for all the studio equipment to send two trucks and a big RV to upstate New York to shoot the picture with Donald O'Connor and Morgana King. So what what was he like? What was Donald O'Connor like to work with at that time? He was absolutely a dream. Of course, he was an older gentleman at the time. Mm-hmm. But that was that was a dream came come true at the time. Did he uh, did he have some uh, musical performance in that movie, or was he strictly acting? No, he had a singing performance. I I insisted on that. Of course, this is I'm asking questions that I know the answer to right now because I'd, when I'd read that, I, I'm a huge Donald O'Connor fan, so I was really actually hoping we'd get there because uh, I I really do. He's one of those people I would have loved to have met. Uh, I'm I'm glad you had a good experience with him. Well, I I told him when we first met, and uh, I was a DP on the picture. That's mm-hmm. what started. But Tom Travis wanted to direct the picture. He had absolutely no experience ever. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you a funny story that should be told. He says, "Well, what kind of equipment are you using?" I said, "Well, I'm we're equipped with the Aeroflex BL, 35 millimeter." Mm-hmm. Says yes, but I hear that you got to have a have a Panavision camera do close-ups. The past might told me that <laughs> he, he couldn't understand that it's the lenses and DP <laughs> that make that happen. <laughs> Not which type camera you use, you know. Right. I mean, it gives you a little insight into his. He's inexperienced. He's a sweetheart of a guy, but... Yeah. And so you also, you mentioned her already. Morgana King was also in that film. And, uh, you know, another just absolute legend. And uh, she didn't have a lot of film work, but uh, her stage work was pretty renowned. What Was she just as pleasant to deal with, I'm hoping? Absolutely. You know, there's one thing I can say for the old pros... They're all so professional and so understanding of everything, even low-budget production. They've been through the mill and through the ropes. Mm-hmm. And they're just cooperative as all heck can be. The first time I met Donald in, the, in his dressing room in quarters, I had to tell him, of course, the, the story, my story of having seen all of his pictures and being an admirer of his. I was trying not to overdo my enthusiasm for him, but um, uh, we uh, 
did try a couple of tap dance routines, soft shoe in the dressing room together. That must have been a bucket list moment. It sure was. Do you dine out on that a lot? I don't talk about it too much anymore, but it still, of course, remains in my in my mind. I'm sure. Well, obviously. So was he the reason you started taking uh, singing and dance lessons then? No, because that, I did that when my mother insisted that she... He was a ballet dancer in Latvia. Oh. And into the arts. And, I, and in Germany, after the war, I was forced, uh, kindly forced. Into, I got a violin for Christmas right after the war. And I hated the violin <laughs> and taking lessons, violin lessons. So they switched me over to an accordion. Well, that was a little better. I worked on that. So. Long story short, when we came to the United States, my mother insisted that I take uh, piano lessons, and uh, I took a few. That I'd rather I'd rather be singing, mm-hmm. so I had to take singing lessons. My mother, my mother encouraged me to do all these things, and my uh, part-time occupation was, uh, and mostly knowing that you're having a German repertoire of songs. I tied in with a German band and started singing in clubs, in German clubs in Chicago, in a German neighborhood. Wow. Every week as a singer. Were you doing more traditional German tunes or Weimar Republic kind of stuff, more cabaret-based, like uh, Kurt Weill, Bertolt Brecht? Everything semi, uh, semi, well, what, what then became German popular music or been, it was very melodic and uh, a little bit toward operetta stuff. Okay. And then you took that talent later on. You did appear in the International Cafe, which was a musical series. Did you did you sing on that? Yes, I did. Do you remember what you sang? <laughs> you got me there. <laughs> well, again, that was probably it. Was probably a little while ago, so <laughs> it's understandable. Something to do with Edelweiss. Oh, okay. I'm I'm guessing not the uh, the famous Edelweiss song, but could have been. Was it? Was could that, have been. That? I don't remember the time frame. That was it had to be nineteen what fifty. Yeah, that was fi- that was uh, somewhere in the fifties. Yeah, uh, it was around the same time you also did an appearance on They Stand Accused, the courtroom drama. Yes, I had a big fan. The executive producer at WGN was or formerly a, I think a CBS producer out of New York, Leslie Erboff. And uh, he took a liking to me, made me his assistant executive producer. I was his right hand, and that's why I got the parts where they stand accused. And and then the International Cafe thought, the production company, they thought I'd also make a good salesman. So I had to go pound the sidewalk trying to get sponsorships for the International Cafe Show. <laughs> yeah, they, uh, that's probably what they did with all the associate producers, I'm saying. <laughs> now, mind you, in the meantime, uh, I can't remember how many jobs I had. I had to do side jobs uh, to uh, support my movie-going habits, especially when the Chicago Theater was still doing 
first run motion pictures uh, interspersed with uh, live theatrical shows, and I saw, I think I saw every every performance of live shows with all the major stars that came out of Hollywood on stage and uh, collected autographs. I was the first guy at that stage door. Do you uh, still do you still have them? Damn it, no. Of course. <laughs> Shoot. Two-inch thick red book, leather bound book that got lost somewhere in the in the moves between uh, Chicago and Chicago suburbs and Wisconsin. I see. Yeah, that would be worth a few pennies today. I would imagine. Do you remember some of the autographs you were able to get? Oh, absolutely. As uh, I should actually say that I don't know who I didn't get. Dorothy <laughs> uh, uh, Lamore, Bing Crosby, everybody that appears at the Chicago Theater ever, I got. Dan That's Johnson. Well, who was that last one? I'm sorry. Dan Johnson, Gordon McRae, Cherise. Did your knees did your knees buckle at that one? You know, I I wasn't I was never overly enthralled or overly um, taken in by it. It was just a thrill to me, the people that I had seen and all the pictures I've seen, to see them in person and they were always very kind and in the autograph sessions or signing autographs is a very pleasant experience. That's great. So in at this point, you've uh, we've talked about you've done a couple of performances on television. Um, you also worked behind the scenes. At what point did you realize you really liked the behind the scenes more? Well, I was interested in how a radio station worked. And because as a mailboy... I had an accent. It seemed that my I still had an accent. I interacted with all the various people in charge of the various departments, and it was interesting how uh, how a television operation works, and how the program logging and the commercial aspect. I didn't make it quite to director at WGN because Bill Friedkin was. At the beginning, at my just at the beginning, Bill Creekin was the head in the head in the mailroom in WGN. Really, and when he left, I replaced. I I became the, the, the more more popular guy in there. So I see. Okay. So and when I went to Germany, I had to go to Germany because my grandmother was sent back to Germany at age 85 to live with my uncle there, with her son. Mm -hmm. uh, and when I went back to Germany, I discovered that German television programming, which I was most interested in at the time, um, was very primitive and awkward. They were just starting out. So I contacted some of the uh, well, I've, Mr. Baltus was the one that helped me a great deal. He introduced me to a lot of people. And the television station, I think it was the, the NDR, Deutsche Radio, radio mm -hmm. um, was interested in the paperwork and the information I had about 
how an American radio and television station was run. And through that connection, I met uh, uh, Peter Fink of the studio Bendersdorf, Germany, which at that time was a major studio, not as big as Bavaria in Munich, a lot of television series and feature independent feature films. Well, and that's, that's when I formed an association with Studio Bendersdorf. The first time I came back to the United States and finished up uh, at WGN, had a uh, eight-month stint in the Army, enlisted. Did you end up overseas with that, or were you, were you able to stay stateside? No, I stayed stateside, but I came close to getting into Korea. Was uh, it was it just a matter of luck that you were able to avoid that, or? Uh, it was age. I actually, I see. It's tough to remember the time frame, the exact sure. time frame. I remember I was seventeen when I joined the army, and um, because I spoke um, a fluent German and a little bit of Russian still at that time, mm-hmm. they were going to send me to Berlin to the border. And uh, they were an injury during the latter part of basic training. And, uh, and so that was able to keep you stateside? Stateside and also got me out early. But it was a, the Army, and in a sense, was a great experience for me. I think I still had the, the early upbringing of regiment, the German type of regimentation that, that suited me fine, you know. And keeping in mind that my father encouraged that because uh, my uncles and my relatives were all pretty much Prussian-type Prussian type officers. I avoided officers' candidate school. Right. I didn't want to really go that route, but I enjoyed the Army, really. And so when you got out, what was your next move? Next move, I went back to Germany to uh, learn more about production, with both Balthus and the uh, my then very close friend, Peter Fink, the owner of Studio Benderstorff. I also, I was an avid reader continuously of Variety magazine and The Hollywood Reporter. I knew everything that was going on in Hollywood and in, the, in production. And at that time, the big thing was called runaway productions in Hollywood because production costs in Hollywood were high. Mm-hmm. And in Europe, especially in Germany, because of the difference of the currency, you know, four marks to a dollar, mm-hmm. American producers were looking for uh, inexpensive venues to shoot at. The studio decided that I should start looking, going back to America and looking for producers that wanted to shoot and use the facility of the German studio. And did you open a, a did you open a satellite office then in Chicago for them at that point? Yes, that came a little bit later, I think. Uh, okay. Yes, I um, at the height of that effort, uh, we rented the penthouse at thirty five East Wacker Drive in Chicago, mm-hmm. and rented a uh, office at at the Goldwyn Studios in Hollywood. So I was pretty much going back and forth between L.A., Chicago, New York, and Hamburg and trying to get Raoul Walsh, the director, mm-hmm. to 
I forgot the name of the production now, but he had a production that was suitable for production in Germany. We, I got him to fly with me to Hamburg. Was that, he, that one didn't pan out. In the meantime, the studio was doing uh, How I Won the War with John Lennon. And that was that was shot in Germany, was it not? Yes, it was shot yeah. there. I was provided the all the equipment, all the facilities for that, for the German portion. And at what point then, was this uh, before you made the two dance movies that ended up at AIP? Let me think. Uh, see, there we go again with the time frame. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry to keep doing that to you. Well, there's so many things happened that... Sure. I know Dance Craze, Dance Craze was around 64, I believe. At least that was the release date. Well, Twist Craze came first. That was the first one. Twist Craze was the first one, okay. I wasn't quite sure about uh, uh, directing. I, I realized I didn't have the experience. I hired a friend of mine, Alan David, who had done, I think, one feature in Germany, who got interested in it, and I asked him to direct the picture. And I produced Twist Craze. And then Dance Craze, you picked up the the camera and you were directing on that one. Yeah, that one I directed and I got a studio with a good camera crew and everything to do all the technical aspects. And, and then you were able to sell those to American International Pictures, correct? Yes, that was another interesting experience. In what I, way? I didn't know how Sam Arkoff was at the time. Mm -hmm. And I got a call. I had rented an office which coincidentally was the prior office to Mike Todd in Chicago. You'll have to help me there. Michael Todd, you know, around the world. In, in oh, gosh, yes. Okay. Wow. Mary Elizabeth Taylor. Yes, yes. Well, wow. I, I inherited, I somehow moved into Mike, what used to be Mike Todd's office. Interesting. And and after the picture opened at the Oriental Theater and became so successful because it was held over, I think, for a super long time, mm -hmm. I got a call from Sam Arkoff, and he says, I understand you made a successful little picture. I said, yes, I, I did indeed, Mr. Arkoff, I think. We had recouped, I think, two or three times the money already, so my investors were very happy. Well, he said, I'll tell you what, he says, why don't you get a, get a reel and, and fly out here. We'll, we'll pay the fare. And he flew me out to Los Angeles, and I got the, why did I get the treatment there? Pick up at limousine. First thing, they had me meet us a few lawyers. I don't know why. <laughs> take me to dinner and lunch and everything. And what did you think of Samuel Arkoff? about a tycoon he was it mm -hmm. i remember being very impressed with his desk that was a half a mile long he became a very close friend after that even though i made the biggest mistake in my life uh, a few months after that they picked up twist craze mm -hmm. and said what are you going to do next i said well i think i'm going to make a um i'm going to do a musical we have something else going here. Says we want to do a, we want to do an action picture about car racing, uh, specifically about the Indy 500. He said, "Would you be interested in that? You mean directing?" 
He says, yes. I said, yes, I would. Just, uh, they gave us a script. I read the script, and I frankly have to admit that I didn't quite know what to make of it. Mm-hmm. It was all action, and I'm not, I wasn't too much into action. Mm-hmm. It had a good storyline. Obviously, in those days, everything had a storyline and was character-driven. So mm-hmm. I... Um, I told him I, I would like to rewrite the script. <laughs> I must have had a lot of guts. He says, well, go ahead and try it. So I went to my old friend, Herb Lyons, uh, Jack, I'm sorry, Jack Lyons, who was a good writer, not all that experienced, but mm-hmm. he was a writer, and we collaborated on trying to rewrite the Indy 500 script. And I still didn't like it. And I went back to Sam Arkin and said, I'm not really convinced that I'm the right guy for this thing. I mean, I should have had my head examined. <laughs> but I was too inexperienced and didn't, not enough of a promoter then to realize that this is the opportunity of a lifetime. I mean, who would tell Sam Arkoff no to a project or a proposition of that nature? But it was okay. I think, you, I think you ended up doing all right. Yes, I'm in, <laughs> and Eddie Hughes became my became one of my mentors, and we stayed in touch pretty much close to her until he passed. He's certainly a legend. Uh, there's probably not anyone listening to this podcast right now who doesn't know his name. Well, he was uh, he was a Hollywood tycoon. No question about that. So that led to then. Terror at Half Day. Exactly. That led to Monster Go-Go. Which became Monster Go-Go. So uh, that was... Talk a little bit about that. That that movie has gone on to have a life of its own. But it's really interesting what... First off, I I think this is a fascinating little factoid. Uh, What was significant about shooting that in Chicago? Well... If anything could go wrong, everything did go wrong. <laughs> uh, first of all, I was hit. We had a started with a, it was going to cost me $50,000 to do as an independent picture. And I was friends with Herschel Lewis at the time. I was kind of picking up on the kind of stuff he was doing. Mm-hmm. And he had made a picture called Prime Time. Yes. And I, th- I wanted to follow in his footsteps and do a picture called uh, I wrote a screenplay called Lover's Beach which was a romantic story driven love story young people's love story mm-hmm. and I took it to Herschel and no, it was too soft for him it was not enough exploitation values Right. so that's when we went I wrote first draft of Terror at Half Day and the name Half Day intrigued me because I had in the meantime, bought a house in Half Day, Illinois. And every time I went home, the name Half Day intrigued the hell out of me. So that's how that story came about. Okay. I was going to ask, actually, because it was such a unique title. I was going to ask where you came up with that. Okay. And it was simply about, I mean, you know the storyline. You know, mm-hmm. Half goes up, gets a big dose of radiation. Something goes wrong. Comes back as a... Um, the monster, so mm-hmm. to say, 
his family's word, and of course the formula type of stuff, but it was right after the first launching of our uh, satellite. So it was very timely, and I thought it had, had all the makings of a timely, exploitable motion picture. Oh, and when I started shooting, I was told that I can't make an independent picture unless I use a union crew. That's when the problem started. The union boss, which was uh, like mafia, came to the hotel where we were headquartering and said, well, you're going to have to go union, and we'll give you the best cameraman we can, good crew, etc. Uh, and we'll take care of the money. So every money, every penny I had raised went to the union, and the first day of shooting happened to be in the boonies in the outskirts of Chicago in the suburbs and required a semi-truck to take the equipment out there, a Hercules Dolly, uh, BNC, or an NC Mitchell with a blimp. By the time the union crew got to unloading the equipment, the first day of shooting went by. I think I had about maybe a week to shoot before money ran out with June Travis and uh, Peter Thompson. $50,000 in a week. Oh, yeah. It, it went so fast we didn't know what happened. Wow. So I ended up with some footage, and I took the footage, and I <laughs> bought an old bullseye moviola, put it in my office and started assembling the picture. And I called the, a friend of mine who was in charge of the theater, Illinois Theater Association, and had a screening for them. And they all saw the 15 minutes or something that I had. And they said, this looks good. I mean, June Travis was very pleasant, professional. Peter Thompson was good. So they liked it, and they wrote me a letter that Allied Theaters of Illinois wrote me a letter saying that I think we had, we had the making of it. It was a very good commercial picture. Mm-hmm. And I used that letter to raise more money. By that time, Herschel entered the picture and because I, I couldn't do it with the union crew. I couldn't continue with that. Right. So I had to hire Herschel as a production manager and cameraman. And his sidekick, Bill Johnson, mm-hmm. a former partner of his. Yes. And we went on to shoot per script as, as much as we can until the money ran out again. Right. Then I found another. Oh, then I went back to Hollywood. I had a couple of weeks of nothing to do. I had to go to Hollywood and find out what I could do with a picture there, if I could raise money there. And Hollywood had no no money or independent productions like that that right. didn't even know. But what I did accomplish, I made a lot of friends in Hollywood and got a lot more mentors on my side and people that I could learn from. Who'd you meet around that time? Oh, one of my best friends became Robert Morris and John Wayne's brother with Patchak Productions. Wow. Uh, writer Mark Hanna. And then if the whole thing turned around, now everybody had a script in Hollywood, and they said, hey, there's this kid from Chicago who's got some, got some experience in raising money. Would you take this script and go to Chicago and raise some money? And one in particular that was written by Mark 
I think Mark Hanna. I don't know what happened to him. He wrote, I think he wrote Ramey with David Ladd, Mark Hanna. And we were going to make a picture called The Gargoyle with Shelley Winters and Lee Marvin starring. Wow. And I went back to Chicago and tried to raise the money for getting all about my own picture. And I said, oh, no, this is uh, Shelley Winters' husband. And Lee Marvin, oh, maybe, maybe not. I just couldn't hack it. So I went back to concentrating on Terror at Half Day, raised some more money, which reminds me a little bit of the story of the producers. <laughs> I didn't romance the old lady, but <laughs> Baba Lou Stuart Taylor, he had a part in Terror at Half Day. Was he the one that uh, Gator was based on? He's the one that... Uh, uh, had the scene with the lady that got stuck with a broken car. Yeah. Okay. Well, he romanced the, the little old lady, a uh, dear friend of mine, who had a uh, concession at the Hilton Hotel. She was quite wealthy. She financed the next shoot of at half day and again Herschel Herschel was involved and then we had these big scenes under Wacker Drive and on Michigan Avenue in Chicago mm-hmm. and I happened to knew Mayor Daly personally and the captain of the first district, police district so I got everything I got for the first time in the history of motion picture ever in Chicago they blocked off Michigan Avenue and Oak Street for us during rush hour traffic. Wow. And we zoomed back and forth on Michigan Avenue with fire engines and civil defense trucks and police cars, which some of it ended up under Wacker Drive. So we had big production values, and the footage went to Herschel's, I think went to Herschel's laboratory. Because I never saw some of that footage ever again. Oh, that's a shame. Well, I remember with the low budget, I had problems paying my lab, whatever I used. And Herschel definitely had problems in his labs. Mm-hmm. Always short on money. So I have no idea where that footage ended up. Well, that's a holy grail for somebody out there. Did you... Um... As far as with Herschel Gordon Lewis, did you did you also ever meet David Friedman, his distributor? Oh, I've met David quite a few times. He's a pretty fascinating guy. Yes, David was a pretty cool guy. Did did you he ever work with you on anything? No, the only thing I, mean, I did I wrote a short subject called Lucky Pierre for Herschel. Mm-hmm. Neither short subject. We did that together. I have no idea whatever happened to it. Was that one of the nudie cuties? Yeah, it was. With, I think it was with Billy Falbo, the comedian. Yeah, it was a stupid little story. Well, it's a nudie cutie. They're all stupid. Something, <laughs> and when he saw something, they were nude. Is that's the one? Isn't he like drawing them? Like he's got that little easel up. I think I've seen that. <laughs> As we're talking here, it's starting to come back to me. Yes. 
I would love to see some of that stuff again. <laughs> it's out there. Air. <laughs> and so it ended up, so Monster Gogo ended up being essentially co-directed by you and Herschel. Um, I, I mentioned earlier, there's an interesting factoid about it. The, it was the first movie made entirely in Chicago since the 30s when Chaplin Studios closed. Is that right? Did, By the way, you... never directed anything in in Terror at Half Day. He may have been Monster Gogo. Monster Gogo, right? Yeah, he was strictly my production manager and cameraman. Okay. When so when you were shooting that, were you aware at the time that you were that you were making a significant movie just in the fact that you were making it entirely in Chicago? And that was the first time since the '30s. Was that something you were conscious of at that time? Not quite. No, I wasn't thinking of that. I had too many problems for the production, too. Sure. So how did it end up becoming Monster A Go-Go? Well, there, there came a time where I had had no footage. I didn't know where the footage was, the commercial shot. I had what I had. I pieced it together, again, working on my black-and-white movie a And... Uh, when the money ran out, I was also getting a little short on cash. It was living expenses. My, my big plans were going back to Germany and working with the German studio. So I went to her. Herschel needed a, another picture for, I think it was, a, he needed a double bill to open in the South and drive in theaters with a picture called Moonshine Mountain. Oh, yes. <laughs> and... I made a deal with him for distribution. I gave him, I gave him everything. And I said, "Here it is. Go take care, distribute the damn thing." And I'm getting out of here. Went back to Germany, and I think that's when we started serious talking about uh, romancing Hollywood studios to come to use our facility in Germany. Mm-hmm. So I was fully booked and. And then getting involved with Columbia Pictures with The Final Guns, which was a Tony Lazzarino production. Lazzarino was a producer of the X-15, Frank Sinatra Company, Hanks and Nicola Enterprises, combination with Columbia Pictures. And Columbia had, I think, uh, 600000 or a million into the picture. Wow. Lazzarino was looking for a production partner, and I thought maybe our studio in Germany could do that, and actually did. So I personally got the picture, did whatever he did with it, and a year or two later, I found out I was given some ads, newspaper ads, and it was called Monster Gogo. I, I somehow got a print, a 16-millimeter print, mm-hmm. Monster Logo, and right there and then said, I never did this. It was that much difference, huh? But I didn't recognize it. It was horrible. Yeah. I know he. Uh, a lot of the actors weren't available, so he just brought new people in, never explaining where the others had gone, and <laughs> kind of became yeah. a disaster. And, and the, the problem was that the extra, the beautiful footage that was there could have 
it could have been a lot better if he would have had all the action footage. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was told by Bill Johnson's years, only maybe 20 years ago, of some of the experiences we had that I had forgotten. Under, shooting under Wacker Drive, we had the fire engines going and the civil defense trucks going and police cars going left and right. Mm-hmm. And a tour boat with tourists from um, the cruise, the Chicago River, docked right, right where we were shooting. And somehow I got convinced the, the people on the boat to uh, run off the boat down Wacker Drive with the monster coming in from the opposite direction and no footage. Oh, that is a, that's a real tragedy. I mean, it really is just to, just to th- all the work that went into that. And Bill Johnson, Bill Johnson told me some of these stories that I had forgotten and I want to just erase out of my mind. And he wasn't quite sure if he had more footage on the picture or what, what happened to it. So that was. So it's basically the end of Monster Gogo for yeah. me. Uh, the only thing in closing I can tell you is that when we had a deal with Turner Classic Movie, this was just about 20, 22 years ago, uh, they said, well, who has the copyright on it? I said, well, I think I have the copyright. I'm the author of it. And they said, well, can you prove that you're the author? And I called Herschel in Florida. By the way, Herschel worked for me at later times in the early 80s, I'm sorry, in the early 70s, mm-hmm. some industrial films where I needed a cameraman. That's kind of where he got his start. Oh, he was good. I mean, Herschel yeah. was super. I thought he was, he could have been an excellent director would he have chosen, done, chosen to do some different type pictures. Mm-hmm. But he was in the blood and gore and guts exploitation Yes. Moody's with the considerable help of Dave Friedman. So he bought another short from me called Hot Night at a Go-Go Lounge, which was the third musical I did. Oh, no, actually he bought two of them. There was one called the La Bostella. It was a new dance that came in. The La Bostella all fall down. <laughs> so he bought that one and put more new dancers in it. <laughs> not to jump ahead but at one production I was doing a series of with working with the FBI on 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 crime prevention films and we had to shoot one one section in on the Illinois border it was a Wisconsin project but we had to go to a bank and, and I needed I needed a crew for that shoot and some production cars. So Herschel provided the crew and the production cars. Now remember, this was uh, in cooperation with the FBI. Mm -hmm. It turns out that the production cars were all stolen cars. (laughs) And somehow Herschel was involved in in the rental company that use these stolen cars. Oh, man. And he rented them to the production. 
So how'd that go over? Well, the FBI agent <laughs> closed his eyes to it. It was yeah. <laughs> more interested in getting these these training films going. Yeah. Prevention films going. <laughs> so it was kind of, I don't know what happened to Herschel afterwards, but I, I heard rumors, which is only rumors. And, because remember, I I liked Herschel. I mean, I, we were yeah. close. It's already too long, the story. I, I called Herschel and Florida. And Herschel, I said, we got to get this thing straight. And I said, you were never the author of it. The things, how can you have a copyright? He says, Bill, he says, you're right. You were the creator and of the picture and the director. So he sent me a letter, and I forwarded it to TCM, and we made a deal. And they had, a, I think, one-time or two-time showing of Monster Gogo. I imagine between... Between that and the uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000 showings, that became a pretty lucrative movie for you eventually then. I haven't seen one penny from it. Oh. <laughs> well, that was a bad assumption on my part. <laughs> I uh, I think I got all of uh, $2,000 from Kermit Classics. Wow. And then I kind of washed my hands of the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. So that moves us. Um, we can we can kind of move along here. I don't want to keep you on the phone for hours, although I could. Um, but your next film uh, was a few years later in 1974, Invasion from Inner Earth. Aside from that being uh, your first fil- full feature film that you were taking on as a director, you also directed it under your Estonian name. Was that something you were hoping to do there forward or was it that it was obviously the only time you directed under that name what made you make that decision there you have it folks Dora Bank for 84 years old he's got pretty good recall Uh, next week we will have an interview with Lisa Sweezy the curator of the Vint Haven Museum that is a ventriloquism museum in Fort Mitchell, Kentucky. I had the opportunity to visit it recently and it is a hell of a neat place. We had a great conversation. We intended to talk about uh, just ventriloquism movies, but we ended up talking about a lot of other things as well. She's a really fascinating person. She's got a lot of insight into the world of ventriloquism, but also into society in general. I think you're gonna like that. Uh, then the following week, part two of Bill Rebane. After that, we'll do uh, another episode coming up with Hyapatia Lee. And following her, we've got Jack Hill. That's right, the man who gave us Sid Haig and Pam Greer. We're going to have him on as well. As always, stay safe out there. And as things open back up, or hopefully keep opening back up, and we don't fall back to a full lockdown mode, Be sure to take care of your servers. Tip them well because at the Walter Paisley Movie House, we don't piss on hospitality. Talk to you later, kids.